I'm in disguise this morning. My, my name is Mike Halpin, and I am wearing a tie. This is Lion and Lamb Church. You're not in the wrong place. Uh, my grandson bought me a tie. Kathy and I have been on the road for a couple weeks. Ethan bought me a tie. I assured him I would wear it. Kathy's going to get a picture and send it to him as proof. So you've seen it as well. Yeah. Uh, part of the trip, the reason for our, our trip to the Southern California was a conference. We got some time in with family as well, but uh, some of you will know J.P. Moreland by name. He's a philosopher. He's been around a long time, the evangelical circles, and uh, great guy, just super guy. He, philosophy is his field, and he's an academic, but you talk to the guy, and he is just as real and committed a uh, feet-on-the-ground believer as you'd ever meet, and he gave one of the plenary papers, and as he started, he said, now I, I really hope this doesn't sound harsh. <laughs> you, know, you know trouble's coming in one form or another. And I thought this morning, I hope this doesn't sound harsh. <laughs> I hope it doesn't sound harsh. And actually to that end, let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we, we humbly submit ourselves to you and we acknowledge that you're God and we're not. And that Jesus is our Savior and your Spirit has been given to make known to, th to us the things freely given to us because of Christ. We ask you to glorify yourself this morning and Lord, draw each one of us in just the ways you, you want to. Uh, none of us are the same. Everyone's at a little different point. Would you draw each one of us more fully towards yourself this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, by the way, uh, I did not have the normal... Uh, preparation time for this. So I'm going to be reading from my manuscript quite a bit this morning, so I'm not ignoring you. I'm just trying to stay on topic. So imagine, if you will, schoolmates playing side by side per the image you see overhead. And back in the day when uh, what the rod of discipline was applied to the seed of learning. I think that's the way that was, was uh, stated. So here's the scenario. An older student is with a younger student. The older student pushes another boy down on the playground. The master comes out because the little fellow is crying loudly. The schoolmaster comes out, reproves the older student for knocking the other boy down and tells him, don't do that again. Now, the younger student is there witnessing all of this, hearing all of that. Five minutes later, the younger student knocks another boy down, causing that boy to cry loudly. The schoolmaster comes out and asks, what did you do? The younger student confesses, I knocked that boy down. The master promptly takes him inside administers corporal punishment, causing him to cry loudly. He complains. I only did what my older friend did, and you didn't spank him. Yes, says the master, but you heard me tell your friend not to push anyone down. You knew better because you knew what I told your friend. That's where we'll be going this morning, guys. This is the 41st, believe it or not, 41st lesson in... I'm clicking, guys, and I'm getting nothing. Uh, the Heroes and Villains series, I'm green, and this says go, so you may need to advance for me. Yep, thank you. Uh, 41st message in the Heroes and Villains series in which heroes demonstrate some aspect of Christ-like faithfulness, and villains show us elements of faithlessness to God and His goodwill, and this morning... This is huge, and this is something that it's absolutely fundamental in the Scriptures. It's, you'll see it Old Testament and New, 
but faithlessness does not require some great betrayal or some heinous act against an innocent. Sometimes faithlessness is simply refusing or neglecting to act on revelation God has already given. Sometimes faithlessness is simply neglect of the truth. And that's what you'll see this morning in the life of the villain Belshazzar. I'm getting, yeah, I'll just, is, is that me or is, did you do that? That's this? Okay, very good, thanks. Uh, if you look at the timeline just for the bigger sense uh, scope of where we're at this morning, last time we looked at a hero of the faith, that was Daniel. You remember he's taken captive from Jerusalem, 605 B.C. Kind of interesting, Daniel's sort of the beginning and the end of the short-lived Babylonian Empire, but that was 605 our story this morning is going to take place in 539. Daniel's in both of those. But when we looked at Daniel, we saw that the, the element of faithfulness, Christ-like faithfulness, was that he went forward into a pagan land knowing his faith would be challenged. And so it said in verse uh, 7 of chapter 1, it said he drew a line in the sand. He resolved that he would remain faithful. That was the key element or lesson from Daniel about Christ-like faithfulness. This morning, in looking at Belshazzar, we're going to see that it simply takes ignoring something. Something that we know, something that we've heard, something that we've been made aware of. It simply takes ignoring that to prove the opposite of Daniel, to be faithless instead of faithful. Babylon was a great empire, but it was short-lived. Nabonidus, when this story takes place, I've got 538 for the Jewish return because it's the next year. This is 539 and Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. He's living in Arabia when this story takes place. His son Belshazzar was his co-regent. So Belshazzar is reigning as king in Babylon while dad's far away. And then on a famous night, this is well accounted in historical records, October 12th, 539 BC, Belshazzar held a huge feast in Babylon in spite of the fact that his city was entirely surrounded by the Medo-Persian Empire. Now the deal was, if you've read anything, uh, the ancient Greek historians, all the walls of Babylon were one of the wonders of the ancient world. They were ridiculously tall, they were wide, there were double walls, which was not uncommon in those days. But if you were inside the city, you basically knew no army can get at me. And that's why Belshazzar felt safe that he could have this feast sort of thumbing his nose at the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire right outside. He was thumbing his nose at God as well. He had a 20-year supply of food. He knew inside those walls he could outlast the armies. What he didn't know was that God was going to provide a way for them inside the city that didn't require getting over the wall. So, Belshazzar forms a cautionary tale for us as a villain opposed to faithfulness because he was faithless with knowledge that God had clearly given him through his forebear, Nebuchadnezzar. So the main points we want to look at this morning are these. We're responsible for the revelation and knowledge God has already given. Uh, the headmaster told the older boy, don't do that. He didn't have to tell the younger boy the same thing again. The younger boy was already responsible for what he heard given to another person. We're responsible for what God has already communicated. When we refuse to act faithfully with that knowledge, we are set up for harm 
in one way or another. It's not always instant. Sometimes it takes a long time for these things to flesh out. But good won't come from our faithless acts, be they big or small. I'm going to read most of Daniel 5. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up there. If you use a pew Bible, this is page 742. And I'll jump through there just a little bit. Uh, But we'll get the thrust. So this is Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. When he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. And just pause there. Nebuchadnezzar is not his immediate father, but that's the term he's the son of. You could say that of anybody in the line of. So he's not, he's about a fourth generation, third generation removed. So he says, hey, bring the gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So remember, this, these are the holy vessels the priests in the temple in Jerusalem serving Yahweh had, had been using before their captivity. He said that so that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They'd taken God's holy things and treated them as common. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. The king's color changed the party's over at this point isn't it his thoughts alarmed him his limbs gave way his knees knocked together he goes from sort of just uh, thrilled and having a great time to terrified the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters the chaldeans the astrologers these were the academics these were the wisest most knowledgeable guys in his kingdom the king declared to the wise men of babylon whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple that is the color of royalty, have a chain of gold around his neck, and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, Belshazzar himself is the second, so he's saying basically whoever solves this riddle for me, he's right after me in the kingdom. Uh, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. His lords were perplexed. I'm skipping down. One of the older queens recommends Daniel be called. Now, At this point, remember, he's taken as a youth out of Jerusalem. This is the end of the Babylonian Empire. He's got to be at least in his mid-80s. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said, I've heard you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, I'll clothe you with purple, gold chain. You're the third in the kingdom. Daniel answered and said before the king, "Uh, keep your gifts. Give your rewards to someone else. I don't need them and I don't want them. And of course, he knows what's coming. He says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And this is the lesson. O king, the most high God, the real God, the true God, Yahweh, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, 
and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. Now we'll look at this later. This is Daniel 4. It's the dream and the interpretation and then it's what God does to Nebuchadnezzar to humble him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom He will. So that was the lesson, God's lesson to Nebuchadnezzar whom Belshazzar knows. Belshazzar knew what had happened. That was the lesson. God's God, I'm not. God raises up. God humbles. And it's the Most High God. It's Yahweh. It's the God of the Jews. All of this Belshazzar knew. And that's verse 22. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. That's our lesson. You knew all this, and yet you faithlessly acted against this knowledge. Verse 23. You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of His house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've treated as common God's holy things. You've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see, hear, or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose are all your ways you have not honored. That's the faithlessness. Verse 24, uh, from the presence of the hand God sent, and this is what He said, this is the writing, many, many, tekel parson. This means God's number, the days of your kingdom brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the balances you found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30, that very night, the Chaldean, uh, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Now just briefly on the history side of this, no one could have gotten in over the walls. That was a given. That's why he felt so safe. What they didn't know was this massive army that was outside had diverted a bunch of their guys. And guys with a lot of people, you can do a lot of stuff. They dug a canal. This was engineering. They diverted the Euphrates River that ran through the middle of the city. So the soul, there was no battle. Babylon was taken without a battle, without a shot being fired. Because the Medo-Persians simply went through the dry riverbed. You know, there was a portcullis, so a guy couldn't get through. But once it was empty of water, they just went in that night. And it was taken in a single night. There was no, no battle at this point. It was all over. Belshazzar acted as if he didn't know the lesson God taught Nebuchadnezzar. That the vessels he entertained his guests with were intended for the service of the only real God. He feigned ignorance because he knew. Daniel makes that absolutely clear when he says, you knew all this. You knew everything God showed and declared to Nebuchadnezzar, you knew, but you acted as if you didn't. And it cost him his kingdom and the life. Now, I want to take that theme and I just want to paint broadly and then a little bit more narrowly as we, as we uh, wind through this. I want to start with this general revelation. Like Belshazzar, all of us have a body of revelation from God we're accountable for. Friends, this applies to everyone. Everyone. You remember in the series the elders went through, one of the Psalms in that series on Psalms was Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's not an opinion. That's a fact. It's a claim God makes for Himself. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. That God's creation itself declares God and His presence and His creativity. Now, who knows there's a singular God who created the heaven and the earth according to Psalm 19. Everyone in all the earth. God says everyone in all the earth knows there's a singular God that created the heavens and the earth. How many of us are responsible for the knowledge that God is our Creator? According to Psalm 19, everyone in all the world. This is general revelation, but it's important because it's part of the ways in which God says He has very intentionally made Himself known. And guys, when we come up and we say, we're not sure there's enough evidence for God, we're lying. If we say that to ourselves, if others say that to us, We'd be careful how we communicate because we want to be wise and gracious. It's a lie because God says it's a lie. Because He has clearly, in fact, if you look at the language, um, night after night reveals knowledge. How often is God speaking every moment of every day through creation? Their voice goes out, how far? Through all the earth to the ends of the world. God has testified of Himself in His creation. Now, this gets more pointed when you go to Romans 1. Not less, but more. This is a well-known passage about gen what we call general revelation. Uh, not specific revelation through God intervening specifically in history like He did with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Just in creation. Just in the testimony God's left to Himself in what He's done. Now, but look at Romans 1 and look where this thing goes. So starting at verse 18, and I'm going to sort of hop, skip, and jump through this as well. He's talking about unrighteous men. And what do unrighteous men and women, it's not specific to men only, but mankind, all of us, suppress the truth. And suppress is an interesting word. It means to hold. So unrighteous people, when we're unrighteous, we suppress the truth. And you might say, well, that means we hold on to the truth. But picture it like this in your head instead. You know, if you're in a swimming pool and someone throws you a, a beach ball and it's filled with air. And you know, you can, if you get on top of that beach ball, you can hold on to it and you can push it under the water, right? You're suppressing it. But it takes effort to do that. That ball, if you just leave the ball alone, where is it? It pops up every time. It's going to sit right on top of the water. That's the picture here. When we're unrighteous, we take the, the ball of knowledge that God's made known through creation and we push it down. You've got to hold on to it tight and you've got to forcefully push it down because it's right there in front of you otherwise. That's what he says we do in our unrighteousness. And he says, verse 19, just work through this with me. Uh, turn there if you haven't. What can be known about God is hard to see. Hard to know. Nope. What, uh, what can be known about God is plain. Now this is God speaking. People who claim to be agnostics is like, sorry, it doesn't work. It's plain because God has shown it to them. Has God given us enough revelation to know that He's God and we're not? He says, absolutely, I have. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived. It's plain. God has shown them. It's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And that's an interesting phrase. Without excuse means they have no, in the Greek, apologia. There's no credible defense for this. There's no credible explanation for I would say, I'm not sure there's a God. 
Or there isn't a God. We're just the product of, of stuff. You can't get there, God says, biblically. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they knew God. And that's true of us today. General Revelation, everyone on the earth knows there's a God. They did not honor Him as God gave, uh, as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And this is Belshazzar. This is the guy in our lesson this morning. Futile in their, his thinking, his, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, he, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. This is Belshazzar. That's exactly Belshazzar. The great faithlessness that ushers in all others is the denial of the reality of our singular glorious Creator God and His claim on each of us as His subjects. We, we, we talk in, in language today of the new atheists. There are no new atheists. There's just atheists. And Psalms twice calls atheists, those who say there is no God, fools. And this has nothing to do with academics or intellectual acumen. Because in Scripture, the fool is the one who is morally darkened. The fool says in his heart there is no God. The atheists who say today and write the books and speak across the nations and the world and at the universities, God says they're fools and they're taking the truth and they're stuffing it down because they know I'm here. They know I've created. There are no new atheists. It's just the same old lie from the Old Testament. Evolutionists who declare that all life is the fruit of randomless processes over time they have no excuse. In fact, friends, Christians who, who say, make a claim that it's the, what they call theistic evolution, it just borders on exactly the same thing. Because you can't get there by God's revelation, special revelation in His Word. When God says in Genesis, He created the heavens and the earth, day one He did this, and day two He did that, theistic evolution is simply a lie. It's an accommodation to the things the world is saying so we feel better about ourselves. But it's a lie. We, Christians should not be entertaining this. Those who give God a nod as the man upstairs. Who's God? I'm not sure, but you know the man upstairs. Santa Claus, you know. The guy who I hope is there for me, you know, when I need something. Uh, or who profess agnosticism are calling God a liar because God has said, I've given the evidence in creation so that you know I am, that I'm different than creation, I'm above creation, but I'm it and you're not. There's plentiful evidence for that. There's no agnosticism that has a defense. There's no atheism that has a defense. All of us are accountable for the revelation, general revelation, God's given Himself in creation. All of us are responsible for this. Moving from that to special revelation, and this is where Belshazzar comes in. In Daniel 4, you can turn there if you want, uh, God gave a special dream to Nebuchadnezzar and then He gave its interpretation to Daniel. And just very briefly, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar basically was lifting himself up in pride. God gave him a dream. He said, I saw a tall tree and the birds of the earth were under it and, and I heard the watcher say, cut it down. And the tree was cut down. Stump was left. Band was put around it. And uh, Daniel says, well, this is the thing. I wish it was about somebody else, Nebuchadnezzar, but you're the tree. And God says that if you're not careful, you're going to be lifted up in pride and he's going to cut you down. You're going to be chopped down. And that's what happened. And if you remember, 
Uh, Nebuchadnezzar essentially had some form of insanity. It says seven seasons, seven years, not sure. He was a beast. He was like an animal. He lost his mind. And when it was over, he said this because God restored him. God basically said, I raised you up and I can take you down and I can raise you up again. He said this. This is Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. Nebuchadnezzar said, I bless the Most High. I didn't bless my gods, Marduk. I didn't bless any of the Babylonian gods. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. He does according to His will among the host of heaven, heaven and earth. None can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar says, Yahweh is God most high. He raises up, he abases. The world basically marches to his drumbeat and his song. And I'm the guy he raised up. I'm the guy he took down. God is God and I'm not. Now, Belshazzar's story occurs 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar died. He knew all this stuff. He knew all the stories. He knew what God had done to Nebuchadnezzar. And he lived and acted as if he didn't. Verse 22, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. And basically, God says to Belshazzar, you have no excuse. You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. He had this special revelation God gave Nebuchadnezzar, but he acted as if he didn't. He ignored God's warnings to Nebuchadnezzar. He turned his back on the fact that it was Yahweh, the God of the Jews, who is God in truth. He chose to live according to the dictates of his own fallen heart instead of following Nebuchadnezzar's response to God's revelation by humbling himself before God Most High. So he had general revelation, like all of us, and he had special revelation because he had God's intervention into Nebuchadnezzar's life. And also, remember that he had the Jewish population was in Babylon at this time as well. He, the knowledge of God was present in his life, around his life, in the world he occupied. Also for us, we want to take this one step further. God's revelation to Nebuchadnezzar and through him to Belshazzar is also given to us in the pages of Scripture. Guys, I'd say this, and you can hear the drum beat behind Mike as he says this again. God's Word from Genesis to Revelation is abundantly available to most of humanity today. To ignore God's Word, to leave it collecting dust on our bookshelves, to read it as literature, but to neglect to act on its contents is to live faithlessly like Belshazzar. So again, I hope this doesn't come across as harsh, but guys, most of us have Bibles sitting on shelves, desks, places in our house that we don't read. And if you think about the extents to which God has gone to give us revelation that Old Testament saints long to look into. Things that people before us weren't privileged to have. And we're privileged, we're blessed like no other generation on earth. We have the totality of God's written revelation in His Word. He promises to meet with us in it. He promises to instruct us in it. You know what I'm saying? Who do you think is responsible for the content of God's Word? You are. And I am the whole. He doesn't have to say it again because he's spoken. And you and I are responsible for the content of that knowledge. He doesn't have to say the same thing again. He doesn't have to say to Mike the same thing he said to Mike's dad or Mike's grandfather. 
The Scripture is there. The special revelation has been given. And we're responsible for that. And guys, we don't want to neglect it. And, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll close down on this just in a minute. Sometimes we think we're making better choices because we neglect either faithfulness or we simply neglect putting ourselves in the place where we're going to hear from God. What does God want? But what we're really doing is cutting ourselves off from God's life and from blessing. You never get more when you give God less. You get more when you give God all. That's when we're blessed most fully. Beyond that, and it's hard to say beyond that, but God has also spoken most specifically in Himself. God has spoken in and through the person of God the Son. So we're talking about the incarnation, the life of Jesus, His death, and resurrection. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 say this, Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. Remember, this was written to a Jewish Christian audience. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. God has taken special revelation and just lifted it as high as it can because God the Son came into our earth, came into our humanity, and represented the Father perfectly. In fact, if you continue reading there in Hebrews 1, it says Jesus was the effulgence of God's glory. If you saw a candle and you say, where does the candle, the fire end and the light that comes from it begin? You can't divide it. Well, the glory of the Father is revealed fully in the person of Jesus Christ. God has spoken in the person of His Son. And there's an implication for that. This is from Acts 17. Guys, you know, when we invite others to consider the Gospel, to consider Christ, hopefully we're being shrewd and prayerful and wise and humble and all that. But we need to remember that the Gospel is also a command and, and that God is more than a nice old guy in the sky inviting people to take Him seriously. The world is under God's command today to repent and to believe the Gospel. So this was Paul in Athens. This is Mars Hill in which Paul speaking to a crowd much like the American culture is today when he said the times of ignorance God overlooked. Because we can claim ignorance no longer. We have general revelation. We have specific revelation in the content of God's Word. And now we have God Himself in our midst declaring God and the content of His goodwill. So the times of ignorance God's overlooked, but now He commands. This is not a request. God commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent and to believe the Gospel. To repent of our willful ignorance. To repent of our faithlessness, be it big or small, and to believe the Gospel. Because He is fixed today on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. We need to remember that the Gospel is, we may present it as an invitation, and it's certainly that, but it's not just an invitation. God's command lies on the world today to repent and believe in Jesus. The incarnation of God the Son is the ultimate revelation God has given. His humanity, life, crucifixion, and resurrection are God's clearest revelation of Himself and His requirement for each of us to repent, believe, and be saved. To reject the Gospel message is a faithless act by faithless rebels opposed to God 
and submission to him in Christ. And friends, the truth is this. We live in a faithless world among faithless generation that has not only rejected general revelation God's made known to all mankind, but in our days has also rejected the special revelation God has given in Scripture and in the person of His Son. And this is a generation, especially in the West, that has rejected the clearest message and truth and warning God has ever given that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That may sound harsh, but that's what God says. That's, that's not my opinion, and it's not for you and me to sit in judgment on God. That's God's word, and it's his deal. It's his dance, and it's his world. We want to be, we call this a post-Christian, post-modern age we're in. It's an age of the rejection of, God's, of God and God's truth, of what he's revealed. That's the scenario you and I live in today. What happens? So I'm faithless. You're faithless. Our neighbor's faithless. What? So what? You know, where does that lead? What's the deal? What we tend to find is what is that God's judgment to those who faithlessly reject the truth is to give them what they want. This is not a good thing. If God gives you what you want, opposed to as well, this is not a good thing. These are real images of real people. These are from police file. These are meth addicts and, uh, and before and after. So the meth addict wants meth more than their life and the meth will kill them. It's, it's horrendous. Like an addict getting more of their drug, it may feel good in the short term, but it leads ultimately to death and not life. And you think of Belshazzar. So Belshazzar trusts in the walls of the city and in the stuff under his hand. And so God says, okay, you trust in your walls, that's fine but the army's not going to overcome your walls. They'll just come in through the dry riverbed. You'll get the benefit of what you trusted in, which is nothing. Nothing. And in Romans 1, three times, this is a very well-known passage, verses 24, 26, and 28, three times it says, what, what does God give those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? He gives them up to their unrighteous lies. He gives them up to lusts of heart, dishonorable passions, and a debased mind. So I say to God long enough, I don't want the truth, I want lies. God says, okay, you, you may have lies. Second Thessalonians, this becomes even more pointed. Right, this is right before the second coming. So this is in the context of the man of sin, the guy we typically call the Antichrist, Second Thessalonians 2, verses 9-12. through 12, The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, for those who are perishing. Now they're perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. They refused to love the truth and be saved, so God sends them strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. It's not a good thing for God to give us what we want when what we want is opposed to the truth and to God's will. But that's what He's going to do in spades. The world's already coming under a kind of, I think, at least partial hardening or judgment because you look at the whole Western Hemisphere. We used to know something about God. We used to, in our cultures and societies, acknowledge God and Christ, at least religiously. But guys, that's in the past. This is where we're going. To those who say to God, we prefer lies to the truth, God says, lies you shall have to reject the truth, to be faithless with what we've already been given, with what we already know, is a very, very perilous exercise. 
What's at stake for the faithlessness of a non-Christian in the big picture suppressing general and specific revelation of God and ultimately relegating the Gospel to the dustbin to those who have said to God their lifelong through, I don't want you. God says, you can't have me. And this is where ultimately the denial. So general revelation, there's God, specific revelation in the Scriptures and in the person of God the Son. And I say, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. I'm not going to act faithfully with the content of knowledge I've been given. Those folks all stand before what's called the great white throne, judgment of Christ in Revelation 20, in which they're judged by the merits of their life. And, and that basically establishes the degree of punishment they, receive, they reserve for themselves in hell forever. That's the end of the rejection, the suppression, the faithlessness towards what they know about God. They say, God, I don't want you. God says, you can't have me. What about us? By the way, if that's anyone here, salvation's a free gift. God saves sinners. Jesus came and searched out sinners like me and like you. And so we don't work harder. We don't clean up our act. We come to God as we are and we say, I get it, you're God, I'm not, you're holy, I'm not. And I thank you that Jesus died for my sins and that's, that's my whole plea. Jesus died for me. That's, all I that's my plea before God. And you'll be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's that easy. It's that easy. For most of us who've come to that place, we know there's been a rebirth. We've trusted Christ. We know we're going to heaven. What do we forfeit? We're faithless. What is that? What does that look like in your life and mine? Heaven's not on the line, right? If you've been born again through faith in Christ, you are eternally saved. Romans 8, John 10, there's a lot of passages on this. There should be absolute clarity on this. I'm my Father's child. I'm born again of His DNA. I can't not become His child. So it has nothing to do with heaven or hell, but it does have to do with a few other things. And this is one, the loss of fellowship with the Lord. You know, if you've ever been outside in the winter sometime and you're really, really cold and then you come into the warmth of a place and all of a sudden the glories of a warm house, you know, they come fresh to your mind. Like, oh, this is what it feels like again. I, I know what it's like to be outside and now I know what it's like to be inside again. And doesn't that feel good? Well, guys, when we're faithlessly walking away from the Lord and one little thing after another, we start getting immune to the fact that we're not in the warm house anymore. But guess what? In that moment of singular conviction, God shows you something or something happens and you say, God, you know, I'm so sorry. Forgive my sins and restore that joy. And you come back in, you're like, man, this is so good. Why would I go anyplace else? Why would I walk away from this? When we're faithless, even in the little things, what we lose is little by little, that sense of God's presence, we lose joy, we lose peace. The things that only we can get in God's presence, in Christ's presence. So one of the things we want to be careful of is if we say little bit by little bit, well, I did this and nothing happened. I did that and nothing happened. You know, I'm, it's a little neglect here and there. There's a couple places in Proverbs where it talks about the field of the sluggard. And it just said, I just nod my head a little. I fold my hands a little. I don't make any great sin, right? It's not one great sin. It's just one little neglect of the truth after another, one little forgetting or putting behind me what faithfulness to God and His Word requires of me. And some point, I realize I wake up and I realize I'm not in my dad's house anymore. 
and I need to get back home. We lose the fellowship of the Lord. The second thing that goes hand in hand with this, guys, we lose spiritual insight and power. We lose spiritual insight and the power to live well in this time and place. We lose spiritual power, the presence of the Spirit, in the way that enables us to speak to others in the way they need to hear. God willing, we're humble enough to know, let me be careful here, in the way we understand God to be saying, this is what's needed, not because I'm an opinionated person and you need to hear what I have to say. right? But there's that sense of God empowering us for the tasks at hand because we're with Him, because we're not grieving or quenching His Spirit. And the last thing is, which doesn't necessarily get uh, great uh, ground here, but we lose rewards in heaven when we're not participating with God in the things He wants us to. And guys, this sounds like uh, maybe a retirement account I don't care about now. You know, my life is full. But you'll care about it. When you stand before Christ, not at the great white throne, but at what's called the Bema seat, and Jesus longs to reward you for faithfulness. And there's a lot to say about this in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. God wants to reward you. And if God wants to give you a reward, do you think that's a good thing to have? I'll bet it's better than we can imagine. And so when we're not participating in those little areas of faithfulness, we're also losing reward. And we won't know what that looks like until we get there. So to err on, Lord, I just want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. I want you to be able to reward me in the ways that delight your heart to do so. That might seem like a little thing now. It won't then. Faithlessness requires only a little nodding of the heads and a little folding of the hands. Faithfulness requires of us not only a dependent on God's Spirit and Word, but the willingness to say yes, Lord, to those things He has made known. I want to wind down just asking ourselves a few questions. Am I giving thanks each day to God, my Maker, for life and breath, for food and covering? This is on your study sheet. Am I saying thanks to God because He made me, because I'm in His world, because I get to enjoy the things He's given, because I have food on the table or I have a house to go home to? Have I obeyed God in personal repentance and faith in Christ and the Gospel command? Have I obeyed God by saying, yes, you're God, I'm not. You're holy, I'm not. Jesus came to save sinners, that's me. I'm all in. I'm all in. Am I giving myself each day to God's Word and ordering my affections and life from it? I say affections for this reason. Guys, we'll, we'll do what we want. We make the choices we do because we want things. We want specific things. If we want to guide, if we say, man, I see that I'm not faithful... What we want to do is we want to guide our affections. And typically what you'll see is my affections are geared more fully to Christ when I'm in His Word, when I'm praying, when I'm gathering with the saints. It's just the normal disciplines of life for every Christian. My affections become more fully centered on God and God's things. And am I looking to the Holy Spirit to enable me to live more faithfully with what I've been given? You and I, we don't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. This isn't a work you and I have power for. The Holy Spirit in us is God's power to say yes to God's Word and God's commands. So we're not... Remember, we don't want to be a religious group, right? We want to be a spiritual group. We, we want to be filled with the Spirit. We don't want to be religious. So we're asking God, by Your Spirit, will You help me to say yes to Your Word in all the ways I know to? 
Why don't you stand? And I want to close by reading this from Psalm 25. I'm struck in uh, Scripture how often the psalmist and others are asking God to do things that they know they can't or won't do on their own. This is part of Psalm 25. Stretch, take a deep breath. We'll continue to worship with Bill and the crew here in just a second in song. But read this with me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way.